Or should I do the, should it be in a more of a formal Queen's English accent or it's uh, the Alistair Begg Scottish accent where we turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. That's a pretty good one. Many of you, uh, I remember texting my sister. My sister was a big fan of Queen Elizabeth II, QE2. She says, that's my queen, even though uh, we look on from afar. Uh, Liam Gallagher, who is a pastor of uh, 10th Presbyterian Church in uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, is an uh, uh, English subject, and uh, he has um, shared some things on a blog that he does about how uh, Queen Elizabeth actually had a robust personal faith in Jesus Christ, as opposed to many of world leaders uh, that we might know and hear about, that she actually uh, professed faith, not just uh, surface level you know, type of faith, but had a deep, abiding, real uh, faith in, in the Lord. And so, um, uh, yeah, that being true, we would uh, be praying for those who will miss her and the changes that will bring, uh, maybe in England, although a symbolic leader, uh, certainly one, a steadying force in the midst of world politics. Interesting that when she was first queen, I think Harry Truman was president. Uh, when she was coronated, Dwight Eisenhower was the first president. Her first prime minister was Winston Churchill. Uh, and then, she, and on Tuesday before her death, on Thursday, she uh, installed a new prime minister in Liz Truss there in England. So, uh, quite a remarkable life through post-World War II Europe leading and uh, being a steadying, calming force, I think, for them in the United Kingdom. So definitely uh, we thank God for people like her uh, who have uh, testimonies of faith. And uh, I saw a quote from her. People have been finding different little quotes, but I found a quote from her that she said she hoped Christ might come in her lifetime so that she could actually lay her crown at his feet. What a sentiment. Um, and now, with whatever crowns she has been given uh, in heaven, I'm sure she has laid those at his feet, as now she gets to be um, a subject to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So interesting to think about. And I did get an update on Greg Rithrow. I'm glad Nevin uh, prayed for him, uh, reminded me. Uh, Bruce Ray, who is a, a fellow member of the fire board, uh, emailed several of us on the board this week on Friday and said that him and his wife are on a trip in Ohio and so they, got, they made a special detour to, to visit Greg and, and his wife and uh, he said uh, that he's doing better than we had ever expected to see him doing, regaining now trying to regain some of the weight, the extensive weight that was lost, especially while he was in his uh, induced coma. He had a surgery to remove fingertips from his right hand due to gangrene that had set in because of a loss of oxygen to his extremities. Um, but that surgery went well. Some of the stitches are being removed and he's healing well. He says he's, he has a sense of uh, humor back and is preparing for a kidney transplant that he needs, uh, which could come any time, um, possibly as early as October. Um, but of course, that's going to be dependent on having a, a matching kidney available. So uh, 
Um, thank you for your continued prayers for Pastor Greg up there at Assembly of Christians in Lambertville, Michigan. And uh, wanted to give you that update. Well, Genesis 2, beginning at verse 4. We read a section of this last Sunday. And uh, we're going to read the whole bit of it because it's the, the, the main thrust of our study this morning as we continue this, uh, this study on biblical manhood and womanhood. And uh, let's hear what God's Word has to say to us here. Genesis 2, beginning at verse 4. <clears throat> These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight, of, to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And we do thank God for his word and ask him to write its truths upon our hearts this morning. Well, we began last Sunday looking at this uh, subject of biblical manhood and womanhood, and our normal pattern, of course, is to go through a book of the Bible verse by verse, and we'll return to that when we launch into a study of the book of Luke later uh, in, in, at, toward the end of the year at Advent time. But in between our study of Leviticus and Luke, um, I really just felt compelled because of some articles and books I had been reading um, things I had been praying about just to, to remind us of a biblical framework for what uh, manhood, womanhood, gender, sexuality is supposed to look like with a biblical framework, to encourage you in that and to also give you, um, as it were, um, 
help as you be, navigate and help your families navigate uh, the perilous world that we live in with regard to these issues. And to really reorient ourselves and say scripture actually does speak pretty clearly to some things. And where it speaks clearly, we ought to, as the church, speak clearly to these issues. And where the Bible is less clear, then we are less firm. And where the Bible is silent, we can remain silent and simply use godly wisdom. Last week, we kind of introduced everything by giving a general framework of what our study will be like and having a basic theology of gender, of the two genders, the two sexes that God has created, that of man and woman. And this morning and uh, next week, I think, we're going to be looking at the issue of biblical manhood. And then after that, we'll look at biblical womanhood. And then we'll see how those things are to be, uh, how those things work their way out in the life of the church, in the life of home, and in the life of our culture around us. And that's kind of our, our roadmap for the weeks ahead. So the question they ask this morning, therefore, is what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a man? And of course, depending on your source for defining what a man is, you will get a lot of different answers for that. Uh, You'll get one answer from media, you'll get one answer from television and movies, and a different answer from political figures, and um, different answers from the culture around you. The culture in which you were raised maybe has a different view of biblical manhood and womanhood than the one you live in now. And... uh, Uh, From culture to culture, there are different expressions of masculinity and what that looks like. And so we're used to lots of different discussions of that today. We've learned new terms like toxic masculinity and and, um, the rise of uh, chauvinism. and, And as we talked about last Sunday, patriarchalism on the one hand and an extreme egalitarianism or radical feminism on the other side. And how do we as Christians navigate these things? How do we understand these things? Well, we have to evaluate them in light of Scripture, of course. And so a few questions we consider is, is there anything distinctive about manhood, about being a man? And if there is something distinctive about masculinity from a biblical idea, is that a good thing? How how do we understand that? And so we have to acknowledge, first of all, this morning, the brokenness and utter confusion that our culture at large and many of us have experienced on this topic. And then we turn to the teachings of the Bible to see what God says about true masculinity. And we have to orient our thoughts to what God says, not the other way around. We don't project our cultural leanings, our cultural assumptions upon what the Bible says and judge the Bible in light of our culture. This is what, most, this is what a lot of people do. Is they, they say, well, this is what culture tells us what men and women should look like or, or the lack thereof of, of gender and you know, fluidity and all these different things. And then they project that on Scripture, and they judge Scripture according to the culture's definitions. Well, we dare not do that. We are called to look at what Scripture says, try to understand it in its context, and then say, okay, then how does that then teach us of how to interact with our culture? That's the, the proper way to think about these things. So let's remind ourselves of the first chapter of Genesis that we studied last week, where God says that um, he, he is in the midst of the creation week, and he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So the Bible, as we mentioned last Sunday, begins with this statement that is implying 
that at the very basis of humanity, we have humanity created in two genders, male and female, and that they are equal. They are equally made in the image of God. They share equal value. They share equal dignity. They share equal worth and importance. And there is absolutely no cause or case for any sense of superiority or inferiority between men and women. And yet we mentioned, especially as we get to chapter 2, that though they have this equality in terms of essence and being image bearers of God, there are significant differences and distinctions between even the very first man and first woman and the inclinations that they would have toward filling God's creation mandates that he gave them to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. And these inclinations are even further reinforced in chapter 3 in the account of the fall where God outlines different consequences of sin for the woman and man that pertain to their relative areas of, uh, of, um, of giftednesses. <coughs> we mentioned that these distinctions between men and women and the roles that they play affect how we view uh, their roles in the home and in the church and that these distinctions are not the result of the fall. The fall makes these things, as Nevin pointed out to us in, in Romans 5, the fall makes these activities more difficult, but the distinctions were there before the fall. And they're not a, obliterated in the new creation. They're not a, a, obliterated by Christ's work, that there there is no female or male distinction with regard to your access to God or to your salvation. No, everyone is on the same exact playing field with regard to that. It is through faith in Jesus Christ, personal faith in Christ alone, uh, Galatians 3 and Ephesians 5 and other New Testament texts, that, that those things are clear, and yet the, the distinctions as far as the order of this world in the home and the church uh, still exist by natural distinctions that have been made, natural inclinations, things like men generally being uh, stronger uh, physically than, than women, and the aptitudes towards the types of jobs, the types of activities that the different sexes, um, the, the two genders participate in uh, by their own desires, because this is the way that God made them. And of course, we're talking in generalities. Within men and women, there are spectrums of, of, uh, of these things, but we're talking generally here, that those things still exist. And that men and women, in general, uh, as God has made them, are designed to complement each other with their distinct dispositions, with their beautiful roles to play according to his good design. We call this uh, idea complementarianism, equal in essence, different in role and, and uh, in dispositions. Now from Genesis 1 and 2, we also saw that gender was given to us by God. It is a gift Gender, therefore, is real, it is good, it is defined by God and not by us, and therefore being male or female is part of our essence, which of course flies increasingly against the cultural winds which say that gender is nothing but a social construct. Well, the Bible disagrees. Gender is a construct, but it is a divine construct, not one that we impose. And thus it is beautiful and part of his plan. Yes, there are cultural expressions of maleness or femaleness, things like, as we mentioned, uh, blue being a, a boy's color in our culture. That the, that's a cultural expression, that when we see a little baby dressed in blue, we can, it's, it's not unfair for us to assume that that 
is a little baby boy. And if a little baby is dressed in pink, we can assume that's a baby girl. But that might not be the same in every culture. Those are cultural expressions. That has nothing to do with God's design. But there are differences of maleness and femaleness that God has implanted in us. And that doesn't mean that gender is only cultural. Men and women share a common humanity, again, equal in value, but we're not identical. And uh, we should be thankful for that, right? Uh, And so we shouldn't be surprised, though, then, that our sinful fallen hearts sometimes struggle to see and or appreciate that design. And it is certainly possible in our fallen world for some people to feel confused or uncomfortable by their gender. But that such discomfort doesn't prove anything about gender being fluid. It's simply a result of the fall and something that we need to compassionately and graciously help people with. Now what we'll see, I think, is that the relationship between men and women isn't meant to be a parade with one in front and one following behind, or a race where the two try to elbow past each other, but more akin to a dance where the two genders in this dance have different steps or dispositions, and yet together they move as one, or they're supposed to seek to move as one in harmony with one another. It's like a a waltz. How many of you have had to, in school or for a wedding or something, had to learn how to waltz, right? And you, you have to learn that somebody has to lead and somebody has to follow. What happens if both people try to lead? Does it go well in a dance if two people are both trying to lead? It does not go well. It doesn't even, even if you're not the people dancing, if you're watching two people, you can tell if there is not a strong leader and, and another person who is following that lead and yet doing their part. And they mirror each other. They don't have exactly the same steps. There are different activities that go on within a dance. And yet when, when they each does their part, when there is a good leader and a, and a good follower, uh, that, uh, we don't look at that and say, boy, look at the woman in that dance who's having to follow the lead of the, of, the, uh, of the man who is leading. Isn't she being disrespected in this dance? No one thinks that. It's simply that this is the way a dance works. And, um, and we'll see, this is the way God has created us uh, to, to dance in, in life. So we want to ask this morning, though, what is distinct about the role of the of the male partner, of men, in this dance. And I want to be careful to stay within the bounds of Scripture on this important topic, but let me just give you a few things to think about as we begin. The first is that, biblically, when we're talking about manhood, we dare not import our our modern cultural sensibilities into the text. When the Bible speaks of the different, about biblical manhood, it is often not speaking about it in terms of its relationship Biblical manhood versus womanhood, or biblical manhood versus, you know, our, our modern deconstruction of masculinity and toxic masculinity, because of course that's not in the context, especially of Genesis, but of the whole Bible. That is not what they would think. What it would be thought of, and we'll get into this more next week. But when the Bible speaks of manhood, it is really discerning the differences primarily between manhood and boyhood when it comes to how men should live. The Bible isn't so much interested often in be masculine instead of feminine. The Bible sort of assumes that. But rather, the more of the stress is be like a man, grow up instead of remaining like a boy. 
The book of Proverbs warns men against the foolishness of youthful thinking and youthful living. That there are certain struggles, certain vices that are, they are common to humanity, and yet they seem especially difficult for young men to conquer. And so biblical masculinity is especially seen in young men growing into maturity. So this is imperative, especially for fathers and mothers of young boys, and for you young men who are in our church, that this is uh, about how you can grow into being uh, mature in manhood and not remaining forever as, uh, as a boy. Another thing to think about, and this is uh, speaking here now primarily to the women here, is that to live as a godly man on one level, ultimately, and primarily is to seek to be holy, to seek godliness. And so when it comes to our Christian discipleship, most of the things that we talk about overlap between men and women. Because we're both heirs of Christ, we're both uh, human beings, fallen human beings who need instruction in things like patience and love and kindness and goodness, and, and those things are, are, are struggles for all of us, irrespective of whether we're men or women. The New Testament, in fact, only occasionally gives the two genders different instructions. So when it does, we should listen to those, we should be alert to those. But normally, a lot of the things we talk about are the same, and in fact, even when there are distinctions and instructions, we can still seek to see the principles in those instructions and still apply them to our lives, regardless of which gender we are. So if you're here today and you want to grow as a Christian man, or a Christian woman for that matter, you have the Bible at your disposal. Pray that the Holy Spirit would grow the fruit of the Spirit in you, as we see in Galatians 5, so that you would be more loving, more peaceful, more kind, more gentle, and more self-control. And then the third thing we want to think about before we launch into our study of the text is just to remember that as we study God's design for these things, we have to remember that we live in a fallen world, which means that some men will exhibit these tendencies more than others. Others may find these tendencies to feel less natural to them. The fall has made it more difficult to perceive God's design in us, but the goal is to seek to live not against the grain of the genders that God has made us to be, but with the grain of that, to, to, to realize that it may look different from person to person, but that we want to live uh, according to the design that God has given to us, as opposed to seeking to rebel against that design. So for some, that's going to be relatively straightforward. For others, it may require more wisdom for your personality, for your context, and for us living in a particular culture. So, let's look again at Genesis 2 that we read this morning. We're going to focus on this account of creation and, uh, and, and look a little bit more at the fall in chapter 3 again, because it is so fundamental for us seeing God's original design for men and women. And then next week, we'll turn to New Testament texts where Jesus and Paul are going to quote from Genesis 1, 2, and 3 to show how they saw these chapters to continue to be relevant and authoritative even under the new covenant. So first I want to think about Adam as the prototype, the prototypical, I'm not talking about Adam here, uh, but uh, Adam in the garden and how he is the prototype for humanity and particularly for masculinity, for manhood, and his relationship to the ground, or to the dirt. Adam and the dirt. Right? Adam and the ground. What is, it? What, is, 
what is the Bible saying here? Because this is some interesting things. Let me just walk you through a few of the verses and see if we, you know, we, we don't start to pick up on some of this interesting language here. In verse 5, we're told that when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and sm- no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, and then we're given this little aside, for the Lord God, for Yahweh God, had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. No man to work the ground. Literally, in Hebrew, it says there was no Adam, man, to work the Adamah, the ground. Adam is the word for man. That's where we get the name Adam. So if you ever talk to Adam and you just say, hey man, you're calling him by his name. It's Adam means man, and the word for the ground, the dirt outside, is the Adamah. Literally, there's an A-H at the end of the name Adam, and it becomes Adamah, the ground. So no Adam to work the Adamah. It's as if the existence of uncultivated ground, bare, raw ground, somehow calls out for someone to bring order to it. Order out of chaos. Just as God does in Genesis 1-2 with the earth when it is formless and void, where he brings form and filling and order to the ground. That this bare ground God has uh, made is still bare, where there is no even small plant of the field to be sprung up, because God has not yet caused rain to fall, and has not yet created man to work it, to form it, and to fill it. Then in verse 7, we're told that God formed the man. He formed Adam of the dust from the ground, from the Adamah. So there's no Adam to work the Adamah. And then God forms Adam out of the Adamah and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. So he forms Adam of the dust of this ground in which he lives. So there's a, a connection, a physical connection miraculously, that God has created out of the ground and formed Adam, his very body. Then in verse 9, we're told that out of the ground, out of the Adamah, the Lord God made to spring up every tree. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man, the Adam, and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Verse 19, Out of the ground, out of the Adamah, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So here we see Adam in his connection of being made from the ground, exercising a a sense of dominion and authority over the ground itself and over other species that are also made from the ground by naming them that he is sort of the primary creation of the ground, and therefore he has a a sense of authority over all of the other lesser creations that come from the ground. And there are echoes here, again, of God exercising his dominion by naming parts of the creation in chapter 1. He calls, you know, the, the day day and the night night. He gives them their name. And here Adam gives names to the animal kingdom. Now remember that part of God's mandate, his instructions to men and women as a a group, as as a whole, in Genesis 1 is to have and exercise dominion over 
the, all the animals. And by the way, that's something we still do, right? This is in the very heart of humanity. This is why you have pets. It's not just, it's not just a, a, a coincidence, but it's part of the God's creation mandate that is built into our hearts, that we desire to have pets that we train and we tame. That's why we have things like zoos and things like this that we go to. Why we ride horses and why we hunt. All these different things are about the exercise of dominion over animals and over the ground. This is why you have a yard that you mow, right? Because if, uh, if, we, ever, if we leave, if you leave your house and we come back in 100 years, what's it going to look like? Well, the earth, the weeds, the plant life, the animals are going to take over your house, right? They're going to grow up and there's going to be nests and things in there. And so uh, part of our job as, as, as men and women, as humans created in the image of God, is to tame and, and fight back against this world, to have dominion over the creatures. They don't control us. We, we seek to have a measure of control over them. Uh, it also means looking after them. It means having things like, you know, uh, conscientious, not ridiculous, but, but uh, level-headed Seeks of seeking to conserve and protect species. That where does that come from? Well, that comes out of this creation mandate. Okay. And it seems that man, by virtue of being created first and be, being created from the ground like these other creatures, has a distinctive tendency to bring order and dominion to God's creation. Now, that doesn't mean that women don't exercise dominion. They, of course, do. But the man here is doing it before the woman even has come upon the scene. And as we will see, notice, she, unlike the other creatures that God makes, is she made from the ground? No. She comes from man, as if to say that she is not a subordinate creature like the other creatures of creation, but she is on the same level, for she is made of the... She's made not from the ground, but from man himself. So she is like him, made in the image of God, unlike the rest of the created order. But here, just as he seems um, distinctively oriented towards working the ground, the woman will seem distinctively oriented toward the man and toward um, other types of activities, which we'll get to when we talk about biblical femininity. In other words, her special concern is the well-being of her husband, and by, the, by, by extension, her family. And again, that can look differently, and we'll talk about that more, um, especially culturally that begins to look differently over the years, but, but we have different inclinations here. Well, if you fast forward to Genesis 3, um, just look ahead where we see uh, in the instructions or the um, description of the curses because of sin, verses 17, 18, and 19, what do we see? But we see that the ground, the Adama, is cursed itself because of Adam's sin. To Adam, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground, cursed is the Adama, because of you, Adam. In pain you shall eat of it, the ground, all the days of your life, thorns and thistles, it, the ground, shall bring forth for you, Adam, and you, Adam, shall eat the plants of the field. And where is the field? But it is in the ground. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, grown from the field in the ground, 
till you return to the ground. For out of it, out of the ground, you were taken. For you are dust. You are a little bit of Adamah. And to the Adamah, Adam, you shall return. So the fact that working the ground is cursed suggests that working the ground is a key puzzle of masculinity. It's a key part of this. Because there is this relationship between Adam and the ground, between man and the ground. So that's what's happening. Did you ever notice all those connections between man and dirt? Right? It's, it's just replete here when we study it like this, isn't it? So this leads us to think. Then there is something distinctive and, and highly connected to the heart of masculinity about working, about these two aspects of, of man's activity, that of working and that of keeping. Because these are the things that Adam does. These are the things that he's called to do, to work and to keep. So again, look at verse 15 of chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden for what purpose? The Christian Standard Bible says to work it and watch over it. The NIV says to work and take care of it. The ESV says to work it and to keep it. Now that word work also means to serve, to labor, or to cultivate. So that's man's role both in the garden, prior to the fall, but also after it. Because if you look at verse 23 of chapter 3, it says the Lord God sent him, sent Adam, sent him specifically, out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Part of his curse. So the point again isn't so much as we see this connection of the ground. The point isn't the ground really as much as it is the working of the ground and the relationship of the man to the ground. And as the Bible unfolds, we'll see that not all men are called to be farmers, of course. But rather the point is that men seem wired to represent God's dominion of creation through the effort of work that God calls them to do. And for Adam, the garden was the world as he knew it. It was the realm where he was to live out his God-given responsibilities. So as one writer said, men... An implication of this is that we're called to work in whatever garden God has planted us in. To invest our time, to invest our energy and our ideas on bringing good things into being. Of making order from chaos in our workplace. So that we can provide for ourselves and our families and therefore, by extension, be generous to others. And so a faithful man is one who is devoting himself to cultivating, to building, to growing, whatever that looks like in your respective field, to use your work to make the world a more orderly and better place. Is that how you think of your work? Whether you're still in the paid workforce or retired, do you see your work as that? Not merely a means for making money and paying the rent, but as a means to cultivate and make the world a, more, a better, more beautiful place. Is that how you view your relationships with others that you work with? Again, that's true whether you're a waiter, an Uber driver, an airman, a lawyer, a 
carpenter, an engineer, or a pastor. And as we cultivate not just jobs and tasks, but we're helping to cultivate our relationships with other people. It's interesting, you think about Ephesians 5, which we'll look at more next week, where husbands are called to love their wives, but they're also called to, in a sense, to nourish their wives. Or Ephesians 6, where fathers are called to raise their children in the nurture of the Lord. That there is a a sense of of, of nurturing and growing, the way you would nurture a a plant or raise an animal, right? In fact, we, we think about this way even in some of our language. We call raising animals, it's a certain field, we call it animal what? Husbandry. Doesn't mean you marry a goat, right? It's something about the nurturing activity that humanity participates in when we raise animals. That there's a husbandry to that. And is that reflected in the way that men, that you seek to raise your families and to do your jobs and to do your work? Richard Phillips, I think, puts this very helpfully. He says this, he says, This biblical mandate to work, here with the emphasis on cultivating and tending, explodes a great misconception regarding gender roles. We have been taught that women are the main nurturers, while men are to be the strong and silent types. But the Bible calls men to be cultivators. And that includes a significant emphasis on tending the hearts of those given into our charge, such as wives, children, fellow church members, friends, employees, colleagues, relatives, and the list could go on. Do we see that as part of what it means to be a man? That it's not primarily about machismo and about, but it's about cultivating and beautifying the world through your work, whatever that work is. Again, this is not saying that men are called to work and women aren't. That's not the point here. But we are noticing that even in the fabric of how God created the first man and the first woman, the man here seems to have a distinct inclination toward tending God's creation. And the other half of Adam's calling is found in that second verb translated watch over, take care of, or as the ESV translates it, keep, to work and to keep. This word keep is used other places to speak of soldiers, to speak of shepherds, to speak of priests, to speak of even God himself keeping his people. We, we oftentimes will use this as part of the ironic blessing in, in, uh, in numbers that either me or Evan or others will sometimes give to you. The Lord bless you and what? Keep you. We talk about shepherds. Shepherds keep their watch over their sheep at night to keep. We often even think about, uh, if you ever watch uh, you know, movies that are set in uh, the Middle Ages where there's castles and stuff, they will often talk about the castle or the inner room of the castle as the keep. Like a room is actually called a keep because it's a place of protection. So this Hebrew word implies protection primarily. And when it is used of God, it describes how the Lord guards and protects his people to keep them safe. And what we see is that a man is both to wield the plow in the work of provision, in the work of ordering and cultivating and beautifying the world, but he's also called to 
bear the sword of protection, to be a protector of those that are placed under his care. And as God's representatives in the garden, Adam was not only to make it fruitful, but to keep it safe. And this becomes even more important once they're outside of the garden after the fall. But in the garden, when Adam and Eve are expelled from Eden, in chapter 3, verse 24, the Lord assigns an angel to guard the way to the tree of life. And that word guard there is the same word as keep in the text. To keep the way to the tree of life protected. To protect the way. Because Adam had somehow failed at this job. So men are created, it seems, with an inclination to risk their own well-being for the sake of others. To keep safe. To preserve to stand up for, to watch over like a good shepherd those under their care. Now again, that can take many different forms. It can take the most obvious form and that of, you know, you jump in front of the bullet for the one that you love. You stand up for and protect your, your wife or your kids from, from those who might do them harm. But it also means other things. I mean, in our day and age, it means things like, you know, having life insurance. It means uh, having a plan for retirement that you're protecting those that you love in the case that something should happen to you, that you're making wise decisions about how you order your house, that you're teaching your children um, the right lessons so that they are prepared and protected whenever they're out in the world not with you anymore. There's different ways that, again, how these things take their forms, but they are definitely, it is a calling of men to have. So I hope what you're seeing so far is that the Bible's depiction from the very beginning of manhood is quite distinct from the cliches that we have seen in our culture in the past and in the present, and even what has been shown in some Christian manuals. There's actually, I think, a pretty bad book that was a huge bestseller called Wild at Heart by John Eldridge. And I don't think this is a good book at all. I think it is quite destructive because it teaches men to almost to sow their wild oats, to go and, and that being men is about being adventurous and, and, and this types of thing. It's just not what I think the Bible has to say. So this thing can even, these kind of misconceptions and popular notions probably reacting against forms of you know, femininity in our culture have given rise to, I think, wrong expressions of biblical masculinity. <laughs> what we see in Genesis 2 and 3 is that masculinity isn't primarily about big battles and adventures, but about primarily tending, what it, where, tending the ground wherever God has placed you, providing for others' needs, and protecting them with sacrificial love. And that can take various forms depending on your aptitudes, depending on your, your skill sets, and depending on the culture in which you live. You can do that whether you're a hunter or a kindergarten teacher. Whether you build canoes with your bare hands and uh, make YouTube channels about it and grow thick beards. And, or whether you write poetry in your free time and explore the arts. The, the form in which that takes place are not the primary things that the scripture speaks about. It is, again, what, these, what is behind what these things mean. So we turn to what I'm calling a pattern of responsibility that we see throughout Scripture. That men are called to be responsible. 
As they're called to work and as they're called to teach, they're called to be responsible in these areas. Again, think about some of the things we've just talked about. God formed the man first and made the woman. And when we get to the New Testament text, we're going to see that Paul teaches that being made first signifies something about authority. And what he's actually alluding to was the common notion of the day uh, that being the firstborn implies authority. The firstborn son would often be in charge of the household uh, and, and the land when he came of age, when the father died. Right? We know the story of Jacob and Esau is a story about uh, being firstborn and the abdication of authority, selling your birthright. And so here, the man being made first is about sort of authority in that sense. <coughs> the nation of Israel, in fact, collectively is called God's firstborn because they had a responsibility and an authority to, to, be, to be the image of God before the other nations. And ultimately, Jesus is called the firstborn over all creation, referring to his ultimate position of authority. So this idea of the firstborn is an issue of, of authority, delegated authority. In verse 18 of chapter 2, God said, It's not good that the man should be alone, so I will make a helper fit for him. And then in verse 23, note that it is the man who names his wife and calls her woman, for she came out of man. She is divinely created, as I said, made from the man to show that she is no way inferior to him, yet she is distinct and made to be his helper. And he has an authority over his wife that is subtly apparent in his naming of her. But her value and her significance is seen in the fact that in verse 24, it is not the woman who leaves her parents to go to the man, but it is what? It is a man who leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife because she becomes the relational center of the family unit. So they're both given places of, uh, of, of preeminence. And then think about what we learn about Adam's responsibility when temptation enters the picture. We've talked about the results of the fall, but think about the fall itself. Genesis 3.1, the serpent, more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? Why did the, why did the serpent Satan uh, come first after Eve? Is it because she's somehow less intelligent, more gullible than Adam? No, because we see Adam following Lot. I mean, if anybody's dumb, it's Adam who just, she's like, it looks good. And Adam goes, okay, I'll eat it, you know, right behind her. So it wasn't because she was inferior. It wasn't because she suffered from some inherent moral weakness. No, he tempts Eve because it is a direct threat to Adam's authority. Satan aimed right at the very heart of what it meant for God to make Adam the leader of the marriage and Eve as his helper. So instead of man submitting himself to God, the woman accepting his husband leadership, and both having a co-authority over creation, here the woman listens to the creature, the man listens to the woman, and neither of them listen to God. So Satan sought to deceive Eve because he knew in undermining Adam's leadership, he would undo the good that God intended for them. Well, look what happens. After they've sinned and hidden themselves from God, now naked and ashamed, they heard the sound of the Lord God in the garden, walking there in the cool of the day. 
And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to who? To whom? To the man and said to him, where are you? So God calls the man first, even though it was the woman who first ate of the fruit. Why? Because Adam held the responsibility for their mutual well-being. And he had abandoned his post as leader in their marriage. So when God called Adam to account, he was actually reasserting the original creation order. And note the death sentence in 319 for all of humanity. It's directed at the man. It is because of you, God says to Adam in Genesis 3.17. Not you and your wife, but you, Adam, that the creation is accursed. So Adam functions as the head, or what we would say, the federal head of all of humanity. Now Eve will have difficulty in childbirth. She will give an account, yes, but Adam bears ultimate responsibility because he is the representative of the human race. Which is why Paul teaches when we get to Romans 5 that we read earlier. That it was because of Adam's sin that all of us are accounted guilty. All we're noting here, though, is that God ordained that through the first man, our sinful nature comes, and it is Jesus, the second Adam, a man who brings salvation. Adam did not do his job in keeping and protecting his wife from the ungodly pagan influence of the serpent. So it seems that responsibility and even authority, while part of the image of God in men and women generally, are especially associated with manhood. And we should expect men to be wired to feel a sense of responsibility for the well-being of others. Now again, just because Adam has the role of authority here doesn't mean that all men have authority over all women. We remember that for Adam, the Garden of Eden was a place of covenant relationships. Adam and Eve were bound together in the covenant of marriage. And they came to dwell in God's place as God's people. When we get to the New Testament, we see that males are given responsibility, formalized into leadership in the covenant relationship of the church and of the home. A husband is called to lead his wife and family. Male elders are called to exercise authority in the church. And that's where this pattern of responsibility becomes prescriptive. But at the same time, we shouldn't therefore be surprised if men in other contexts choose spheres for work where they have a proclivity to feel to feel responsible for others, to seek leadership positions. And we also shouldn't be surprised when, and again, we're talking in broad generalities, where women choose roles that are more supportive roles. We shouldn't be surprised by these things. We shouldn't seek to rebel against them, and women shouldn't be made to feel inferior because they choose these roles. They're simply the way that God made us. And again, we're talking in broad generalities. There's some women who have roles of leadership, and and there are some men who take supportive roles. So we're talking in generalities here, but this is the way that God designed our world. That's where this pattern comes from. Single men in the church, by the way, should feel a brotherly sense of responsibility to provide for and protect their other sisters and brothers in Christ. They have a familial role as well. Even if they're not married, they still have a role to play in the working and keeping of this world. In the workplace, godly men should welcome responsibility, not be lazy and take care for the needs of others, to see them as their role, whether a boss 
or an employee as a, care, as a role of care, not of, just, not of just of cultivating and making their business bigger, but of cultivating, doing their job well, but also cultivating the relationships of the people around them, whether women um, or men, whether employees or bosses. And ultimately, and next week, we'll look at more texts and seek to see more of the puzzle pieces of biblical masculinity. But we have to end by asking, what should we do when we fail? Because men will fail. We will fail to be good workers, and we will fail to be good keepers, whatever our roles are. Some men may need to repent, even this morning, of the ways that they've been passive, or lazy, or domineering, whatever the case may be, in the work that God's given to us. Others may need to confess how they've failed to honor women, or wronged, or objectified them. God knows all and will deal justly with all men who do not forsake their sin. Some women may ask where they can turn when the men in their life have let them down or have been monstrous pictures of masculinity, not biblical ones. All of us, whatever our sin, whatever our shame, or whatever our hurt, however we've been sinned against, can have hope because we do not trust in mere men. We do not trust in Adam but we trust in Christ, the perfect man, Jesus. The first Adam served himself, and in doing so failed to provide and protect. The greater second Adam, Jesus Christ, gave of himself to provide for and protect us and keep us eternally. The first Adam was cursed for eating from a tree. The greater Adam, Jesus Christ, was cursed in our place by hanging on one. The first Adam's sin led to the curse of the ground. The greater Adam was buried in the ground and burst forth from the, de- from the grave to undo the curse on creation and give us resurrection life. Jesus is the faithful husband who loves us, nurtures us, and cares for us as his bride. And our hope is always and only in him. Let's pray and ask him, the great man of God, to help us in our task. Father, we thank you for your word and ask that you help us to be better men and women who seek to follow your authority and your guidance, but particularly help the men of our church to be kind, patient, good, gentle, loving leaders who work for your glory and for the good of those around them, not out of selfish ambition, but out of heart to make this world more beautiful for those that they love and are around them and are under their authority, whatever spheres of authority that might be, and help us to be those who keep and protect those around us uh, through the various means that you've given to us to make this world a better place for those that we care for and to reflect your creation mandates and to ultimately point people the best way that we can work in this world and keep and protect people is to offer them salvation in Jesus Christ, which is found through faith in him alone. So, Father, we pray for any here this morning that do not know Christ as Savior, that they would recognize that it is not through the working harder, better, and it is not through the doing. It is no list of sins that we have done. It is no list of virtues that we pursue that can ever make us right with you, but it is only through the gift of the gospel It is only through the gift of what Jesus did on the cross for us that we have everlasting life, sins forgiven, even the sins of failing to be uh, the men and women that God would like and call us to be.
We thank you for the perfect man, Jesus Christ, who undid the curse brought upon us by our first parent, Adam. And we pray for the grace and wisdom to lead lives of holiness before you. For it is in Jesus Christ's name that we pray and ask these things. Amen.